Welcome to the GateWorld Podcast. You're listening to episode number 33 of the GateWorld Podcast. I'm Darren. I'm David. And this is the show where two sci-fi nerds talk about the sci-fi channel's long-running franchise, Stargate. Today, David and I are talking about a topic that I think is going to be really interesting, I hope. It's uh, ships versus Stargates as storytelling devices. When we bring ships into the Stargate universe, did it fundamentally change things for the better, for the worse? We've got some interesting opinions. I've got some, David's got some, and you guys have sent us in lots and lots. There was a lot of conversation about this topic this week. Yeah, a lot of people are polarized on this issue, which is really interesting in my opinion, and uh, we will definitely exercise some of that opinion on the show. It's a nice breadth of opinion. We'll weave that into our conversation this week instead of cramming it all in at the end. But first, we've also got a preview of GateWorld's upcoming interview with Neil Jackson, who played... Kalik on SG-1 Season 9's Prototype, and the Wraith Renegade in Season 5 of Atlantis, Episode Vegas. Very cool. He seems like a cool guy. He's a really cool guy. First, we've got a little bit of news to get to. Not a whole lot this week. And David, you've got a little update for us. What have you been doing for GateWorld this week? Well, we promised a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away that we'd start working on this toys section. GateWorld is your complete guide to Stargate. It's not just a slogan. It's something that we live by. And uh, toys have never been covered on the site. There's no toys section on the site. What's up with that? Well, what's up with it is we get distracted by other things (laughs) and we're only only two men. And uh, I own every one of Diamond Select Toys and Hasbro's original Stargate series release. But I am not taking them out of the box. And they're lining my spare bedroom right now, actually, as um, as wallpaper border on the ceiling. Toys are meant to be played with, my friend. No, I can't I can't play with these. So they're all in their boxes. And my mm-hmm. dear buddy from Stargate Worlds, Carl Koss, who we actually had an interview with. You can find that in our interview section. Carl Koss is a Stargate toy lover. And he has most of the toys. And I absconded with his toy collection this past week and photographed them. And have just been taking pictures of these things from every different direction. And the uh, toys that are assembled when uh, you get all the uh, series sets together, like the gate and the mouth and the ramp and the DHD. Cool. So it's really going to be a neat section. But I do need some help. There are several toys that we have missing. The current release set of toys is about 40 and 28 have been photographed so we have 12 missing particularly the black ops uh figures for the collection and a few others if there is anyone in the phoenix area who has these toys out of the box and their accessories and would be interested in me buying them lunch and borrow toys for a few days to photograph them please get in touch with me at david at gateworld.net and I will give you credit on each and every photo that we take, and we'll go from there. So if you live in the Phoenix area and you have a bunch of the toys out of the box, give me uh, an email. Shoot me an email, david at gateworld.net. Yep, that would be a big help to us if anybody's out there. Uh, David wants to play with your toys. Exactly, it is. And uh, I, I do want to play with your toys and uh, just really want to complete this collection. So I'm looking forward to to uh, seeing how this this uh, section turns out because it's been in the works for literally two and a half years now, not because it's so complicated and, and huge and great, but because we we keep putting it on the back burner for other projects. But it was in the summer of 2006 when we were launching GateWorld 2.0, our redesign, that I started working on putting together the toys section. And yeah, hopefully before this summer we can get it all done. Exactly, yeah. I, I, I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, it's got all the movie toys 
and the Diamond Select current figures right up to the 12-inch figures. And I sat down a couple of days ago and mapped out a spreadsheet of every single accessory that comes with every single one of these toys. And it took a good couple of hours just to organize everything. Yeah. But I'm pretty happy with it. And hopefully, with Darren's permission, we'll be able to post the spreadsheet somewhere on, on GateWorld as well, just so collectors can have an idea of what, what they have and what they don't have and what yeah. they'd like to have. I think that'll be a nice resource for collectors. Stargate News. Here are your headlines from GateWorld for March 10th, 2009. One of our friends and a fan favorite from the history of Stargate SG-1 and Atlantis is making his big return to the Stargate franchise. Peter DeLuise will direct the fourth episode of Stargate Universe titled Fire. Peter is a longtime director on the show going all the way back to the SG-1 season 2 episode Serpent Song. That was his first one. And according to IMDb, he's directed 57 episodes of SG-1 and 6 of Atlantis. Just a few episodes ahead of Annie Makita. Yeah, he was one of our mainstay directors, and he worked on, on SG-1 all the way through season 10. Family Ties was his last episode, and then instead of sticking around for, for Atlantis, he moved on, and, and he's done some more directing, and, and he's, he's and acting. exercised his acting chops a bit. Of course, he was an actor before he was a director. So that'll be cool to have Peter back. He's a very talented director. And also in Stargate Universe news, we have one more episode title to add this week. Episode 9 is currently titled Judgment. It is not an elemental title. It's not an elemental. It's not uh, air and fire and earth and water we have coming up in the first part of the season before this. Apparently the new pattern is one word episode titles. And there was originally an episode of SG-1 that was called Judgment that was canned. That was uh, Brad Wright's third a Shen story, right? The Asgard mediate a uh, a trial between the Ashen and us. We are put on trial. Well, Judgment, we don't know a whole lot about it right now. Uh, this is written by Alan McCullough, who was uh, formerly on staff for Atlantis. And that's about it. We don't know any story details yet. But it should hmm. deal with some uh, political intrigue, some, some tensions on board the Destiny and questions about legal issues, I think. I'm, and this, is, this is some speculation on my part. When somebody does something they're not supposed to do, what do we do with them on this ancient ship? And Richard Dean Anderson was back on Saturday Night Live this past Saturday. I did not catch it. Did he reenact his MacGruber He sketch? did. I, I picked it up on, on Hulu. I missed it on Saturday Night. But it's on Hulu right now for U.S. viewers, and that's on GateWorld now. Is it any better than the other? Did you see the original MacGruber, the Pepsi skits? Yes, I have seen all three of them. The first one I liked, the second two I felt were a waste of Rick's talent. Yeah. Mech. But was this one any better? This is, uh, it was again as a series of three that aired throughout the night, and they're so much better. This is the M MacGyver MacGruber crossover that I think we all wanted it to be originally. Uh, oh, it's, good. it's actually funny, and Rick is good, and he gets a little chance to act, I mean, as much as you do in an SNL sketch. And um, right. it's funny, which okay. sets it apart, I think, from the original ones. And his, his hair looks like hair instead of like an animal died on his head. <laughs> So yeah, they're funny. They're definitely worth checking out over at uh, GateWorld.net right now and at Hulu.com. GateWorld features. GateWorld's brand new interview with Tayla Amagan. That's Rachel Luttrell is now online. So you guys talked about Tayla and the run of the character through the fifth season of the show and yeah, sort of wrapping, yeah. wrapping it up. We were on the phone for about uh, half an hour, and that edited down to about 22 minutes. We talked a lot about uh, her son being on set with her and him being the joy of her life now. And the support system that she has in place with her family and friends both in L.A. and Vancouver, and the gigs that she's going out for right now. And uh, that's available on the site. 
And who's our next interview with? Neil Jackson, the Wraith from Vegas, and Kalik in Prototype, SG-1 Season 9, Anubis's son. Mm-hmm. Great guy. He was on Blade as a vampire. Blade the series, yeah. Uh, he was in Alexander. He played Perdiccas. And just an all-around cool guy. Currently dating one of the stunt women for Stargate, who was Elizabeth Weir's stunt lady. Really? Met her on the set of Prototype, actually. And we talked for about, again, another good half an hour. I'm really looking forward to this one getting out. Very cool. I, I remember giggling with Robert because he he put in the script, uh, you know, the opening bit. So yeah. Shepard's driving along in, in, in his car. He's got Johnny Cash playing, and in the in the uh, in the script he said, "Driving along, it's dusty. He's moody. He looks like he's hungover." With Johnny Cash, hopefully in parenthesis, playing on the um, <laughs> on, the, on the radio, and he put in so many calls to get that. So he he pretty much got whatever he wanted for that episode, and that yeah. final explosion. I yeah. remember we were all on set and we were behind these barriers with the fire safety guys. That was huge. We were we were maybe eighty to a hundred feet back from the explosion, and. All of us took a step back with the heat of the blast. It was Holy a cow. massive explosion that they did. So, so much explosive material were crammed into that small little trailer. Um, wow. And it was, yeah, it turned out really, really well. Well, we'll look for that on Gate World later this week, early next week. Um, Let's just say very soon. Yes, that's soon is a safe <laughs> word. The main discussion. Our main discussion topic today is ships versus stargates. This is one that I think I've been wanting to talk about since we started the podcast last summer. When yeah, we bring we've had in this one on our list for a while. Ships, yeah. I mean, I love our spaceships. I love the Daedalus. Um, I, well, they're I, cool. I'd say that out front. Yeah, ships are cool. They're very sci-fi. And um, they let us do some fun things that we couldn't do before. Um, but when we bring ships into the Stargate universe, you know, Stargate has always stood apart from other sci-fi shows, or, or at least it did in its first several years, because that center device, the Stargate, the centerpiece of the show and of storytelling, was so unique, and it was so different from Star Trek and other common ship-based sci-fi series out there. So, discuss. Well, what is a Stargate? A Stargate is a means of travel and a means of discovery, and it is a storytelling tool. What are spaceships? Spaceships are a means of travel, a means of discovery, mm-hmm. and a storytelling tool. That have been done a zillion times. A zillion times. Now, the Stargate was a pretty much original idea, and now you bring in ships in the sixth season episode of SG-1 Prometheus. These are now in conflict as a means of storytelling. Mm. What do we do? The idea is, I think they touched on the Prometheus once more after the two-parter in Season 6, Memento, and that was heavily enforced with a Stargate dilemma as well on that planet. But after that, after a couple of seasons, the Prometheus, and then the Daedalus, and then the Odyssey, and then the Korolev, and then the Apollo, they all start to kind of seep in there more and more. I think it's really interesting, you know, the reason why Atlantis was placed in the Pegasus galaxy is because SG-1 was ongoing, mm-hmm. and they didn't want to say, well, we're in a bit of a problem, let's call in these guys, you know? But really, that's what the ships kind of do. You look at the episode Inferno, season two of Atlantis, you know, we're in a bit of a problem. This volcano's exploding. What do we do? We call Caldwell. We call the, we call the Daedalus. Or the uh, R75 bugs uh, have invaded the, um, the Gamma site. What do we do? Mm-hmm. In the Scourge. In the Scourge. We call the Odyssey to bail us out. You know, that's kind yeah, of the, the same Yeah, the Scourge, thing. I think the Scourge is a really good example of uh, the sort of ending that you never could have done before. 
uh, take that for good or for bad. The, the, the climax of the episode is we've got to fend off these creatures long enough for the ship to beam us out. And that's our escape plan is we have to survive and the ship's going to beam us out. It's good, I think, in the sense that it's different. Stargate had been telling stories for six, seven, eight, by that point, almost nine years. Uh, so it's different. You want to see some differences, but is it Stargate anymore? Well, so let's run down the history of ships on Stargate. You mentioned Prometheus, which is our first big, big battle cruiser. You don't want to forget about the X-301. So yeah, let's go back and start with the X-301. Interceptor. When did that first show up? Well, the Interceptor itself first showed up in Season 4, but it was it was uh, jury-rigged from a couple of Gould death gliders. Mm-hmm. That was the 301 in Tangent. Uh, and they had been working on them for a few years. But that didn't work out because of a certain recall device that Apophis had created. What in God's name is that? That general is the X-301 Interceptor. It's a hybrid craft, sir, made with a combination of good old American know-how and two gold death gliders that SG-1 recovered a couple of years ago. It may be the most impressive aircraft I've ever seen. Oh, it's more than that, sir. Up till now, we haven't had a platform from which we could launch an attack against a gold ship. Now we do. So what do we do? We create the X-302, which is completely man-made, no gold recall device, and the experimental 302 eventually molds itself into fighter 302, F-302, which is the same thing. Right. So those were our interceptors. And then the X-303, Prometheus. And the 302s we, f- we first saw in uh, the beginning of Season 6. So now SG-1's right. been on the year for five years. I can understand wanting to inject the ships now at this point. Most shows don't even get to go for five years, let alone find new life starting in Season 6. So Redemption comes along in Season 6, and we get the X-302, which becomes the F-302 right. once it's no longer experimental. Keep going. So Season 6, Redemption 1 and 2, the F-302 is introduced. Hyperdrive on the F-302 is a failure. So Prometheus comes along. A news reporter shows up at Major Carter's driver's side door. She says, what is this element? What is it connected to? It's called Trinium. We know that. And we have some insider sources that say there's something else. Carter eventually reveals the X-303. Prometheus, which is the underdevelopment underground somewhere in Nevada. Huge, 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 huge spaceship just under the ground. Prometheus is the third in a series of designs that incorporates both human and alien technology. You're saying little green men helped you build this? Actually, they're gray. All the key systems were reverse engineered from a ship that crashed 100 miles north of Fairbanks, Alaska in 1978. It was only in the last few years that our technology evolved to a point where we could take advantage of what we had. Fairbanks. Better than Roswell. Now, you mentioned hyperdrive technology with the 302, and obviously the 303 has this as well. This was a, a very significant development, and this was one of the reasons why Jonas and his planets were so significant in Season 6, was because they brought us Nequadria, Nequadria. that variant on Naquita, which allowed us to power our hyperspace engines. That's right. And Prometheus couldn't go to hyperspace for a really long time. One of the things about the 302 when it first came along that interested me so much was that it was a, a fighter size, a two-man craft that was capable theoretically of hyperspace travel. This was the first time that SG-1 could jump in a ship and go to another planet, not using the Stargate, mm-hmm. uh, unless we had gone and, and grabbed a a gold transport vessel. Or the Tok'ra, but us borrow one, yeah. Yeah. This was the first time that we were capable of interstellar travel by ourselves based on Earth technology. And it didn't work, and I thought that it was really interesting that it didn't work. And we had this desperate mission 
where we have to get to Abydos to make contact with our allies in Redemption, yeah. and it doesn't work. Let's jump to our listener mail real quick. Sylvia says, I think the addition of ships made the show a bit more generic sci-fi, and a bit of the archaeological social science focus was lost. But the space battles look cool for the fanboys, so perhaps the ships kept the show on the air longer? That's an interesting point. Yeah, you know, you could kind of divide SG-1 into two eras. There was five years of just walking through that gate on foot, and there were five years of spaceships. Well, that's not necessarily true. The Gould cargo ship was built in Season 3 for an episode called Dead Man Switch, and they used that set repeatedly throughout Seasons 3 and 4, primarily for various episodes with Jacob Carter. One of my favorites is uh, Serpent's Venom, where yeah. we intercept a rendezvous with Harrower and Apophis. Just some great dialogue uh, about dealing with, with this mine that we've beamed aboard the ship with transport rings. So mm-hmm. there was a lot of ship-based stuff that didn't have the Stargate to do with it. But this discussion is mainly talking about man-built uh, craft yeah. Earth's, from Earth. Earth's ships, yeah. Yeah, and using those cargo ships, I miss those cargo ships because they they had a very alien feel, a very Gould feel that, yep. that came to be identified with the show. Yeah, and I, I, the cargo ships, I really liked those episodes. You know, those those are hallmark episodes for season three and four, as, as far as I'm concerned. You know, Jolinar's Memories, The Devil You Know, Serpent's Venom, mm-hmm. even Dead Man Switch. Angela says, I think that after so many years of Stargate, Earth ships were bound to appear. Asgard and Gould influences were too strong. Besides, they introduced a new frontier to conquer if you're okay with conquering other people's frontier but basically it means we can go out into space now and we're not limited to planets where there is a gate Uh, but this is an interesting point we've got allies with the asgard and we've got gould and and lots of opportunities to pick up their stuff to steal their ships so you know it seems like it's kind of inevitable that earth is going to figure it out yeah i mean picking up their ships and their other goodies is one thing but manufacturing them ourselves you know is is kind of different because that means that uh, we have the technology to manufacture as many as we want theoretically but there's an innocence that is lost with that i I, and one of my favorite episodes I, i i know uh, Sam and Jack Shipper fans will hate me for this, but one of my favorite episodes is 100 Days. And the only way to get to Jack O'Neill is to somehow find a way to drill through the molten surface that is in case the Stargate under, underground after a meteor strike to mm-hmm. get him back. Uh, otherwise, Edora, the planet that he's on, is way too far away. This is SG-1 Season 3. And mm-hmm. it was just a great show. Jack was stuck, and there was no way for us to get to him. That's an innocence that was lost on the show once the Prometheus and all these other ships really started showing up. Yeah, and that's a quality of SG-1 that made me fall in love with it, was yeah. the fact that that we had to think creatively because our technology was not there our understanding was not there so we had to think creatively as people you know sam carter had to to think creatively and then work her butt off to create the device and then on the other side of the coin you know the writers i think had to think creatively in order to mm-hmm. get their characters into and out of those sorts of situations mm-hmm. i think it became very easy as as we got later technology as we got transporter technology as we've we've talked about in the past as we've got ships to sort of fall back on those as as the outs. Well, you know, they're there, so it's obvious that the characters would use them. So you either have to use them and do it creatively, or you have to come up with an excuse to get rid of the ship. Mm-hmm. You know, it's mm-hmm. the, the Daedalus is on Earth right now, and so it, it can't be here for another three weeks, so we were, we're on our own. 
Eternal Destiny says the addition of ships to SG-1 did more good than harm. They allowed us to reach previously unreachable planets, e.g. Memento, unreachable phenomena, e.g. the Nebula and Grace, and let us confront our enemies a little more on our own terms, such as covering SG-1's butt in Lost City and searching for hidden ships near Earth in various episodes. It also opened the door for other types of encounters such as piracy and hijacking in Prometheus Unbound and Company of Thieves. This this may be a little bit too early on to harp about in this particular podcast, but I think one of the the ideas that we have going forward in in the Stargate series is once we open a Pandora's box, we can't close it again. Like once we get Asgard transporter technology, we can't ever go without it again. Or once mm-hmm. we have chips. the the locator chip, we have to write a workaround every time we want to uh, disable its use. So so transporters, well, we just say that there's too much interference, and then we move on. You know, that's a classic Star Trek thing. I propose that that does not have to be the case. My issue with ships, my bedrock issue, is ships getting us from one planet to another instead of the Stargate. Mm. I wish that the writers would be willing to say, let's destroy our ship's ability to use hyperspace jumps from one planet to another and let our ships only defend the planet that they're in orbit of because they are unable to go any range outside of that. It would take them forever to get to another star system. Disable their hyperdrive abilities forever. Just say that we've run out of Naquita on that planet that the jo- that the Unas were mining for us in Enemy Mine and say, this is it. We have to position the ships around the planets that we want them positioned around so that they can defend them if they come under attack. But that's it. They can't go from planet to planet anymore. Yeah, I don't know how you would do that. But it can be done. Because we, we still have hyperdrive technology. You don't need Naquita to power a hyperdrive. It was originally with the Prometheus, it was Naquadria, and then they sort of didn't... They didn't explain it anymore, uh, what exactly powers it. But it was never Naquita that powered it. They were using Naquita from the mine to actually construct the ships, in addition to the Trinium. That was my understanding, at least. Trinium and... and and Naquita together to construct the ships. I think that point is moot, though, because whatever whatever we invent, you know, they're all fictional elements. We can we can we can give and take away from that. Yeah, find a workaround. Exactly, exactly. I would like to see some more ships blown up. The Korolev was, I mean, it was almost comical. It was almost comical. The Russians got their own ship. The paint isn't even dry. I know that it's got like eight seconds of screen time and it gets blown up in in Camelot when the Ori invade. It's cool to have new ships rolling off the assembly line about every year and to find out, okay, now we've got uh, a ship called, what are the new ones, the Sun Tzu and... The Sun Tzu and the Hammond. The Hammond now. I would love to see more ships blown up. I don't think that our (laughs) fleet should get too big. Yeah, it becomes really unrealistic. Like Brad said, and I quote, how the hell is this still a secret? (laughs) <laughs> well, thank God that the Prometheus got waxed in, uh, yeah. in Season 9's Ethan with the, the Ori technology satellite. Not a lot of people liked the design. That was a butt-ugly ship. <laughs> I hated it. I mean, as exciting as it was to have our first very our first battle cruiser, our first interstellar ship in Season 6, I never liked that design. I thought it was ridiculously ugly. Yeah, it has a long arm in front of it and um, like a lot of office buildings on top. But, no, I uh, think it looked like a big flying building. It looked like a big skyscraper on its side yeah. hurtling through space. 
But yeah. when we when we got around to the Daedalus class ships, I think the design is is awesome. I have to agree. When did we yeah. first see the Daedalus? That was season two of Atlantis. The episode was the Siege Part Three. Okay, so that's the it point. It was introduced where... in season eight's uh, episode Mobius Part One of SG One, and was. it looks just like the Prometheus on the graphic. Really? So it must have had a major redesign while it was on its way to the Pegasus Galaxy. When did they show a graphic of it in Mobius? First frame of the episode. They're sitting here talking about the new ship? Yep, and Carter says... The Daedalus. It has a few advantages over the Prometheus. The more advanced alien technologies were into the original design rather than tacked on after the fact. When's it going to be ready? Well, they're already testing the Asgard hyperdrive. As soon as that checks out, she'll be good to go. But she was apparently looking at schematics for the Prometheus? Yep, it was on the monitor. So yeah, Atlanta season no, two. No, it was the it was the Daedalus that they were looking at, which is why it's so odd because hmm. they didn't want to unveil the look of the Daedalus at that point. Atlanta season two, yeah. when we when we first see the Daedalus and and we meet Caldwell, this was the point where Atlantis was no longer completely separated from Earth, uh, far away from home, Voyager esque. Uh, this is where we got reconnected with Earth, mm-hmm. and so we have the ship now that can go back and forth. It takes a while; it takes three weeks or so. To, to make the trip one way. Yeah, this was the point, I think, where the shows, this was SG-1 Season 9 and Atlanta Season 2, I think fundamentally changed and started relying on those ships a lot more. Yeah, well, it makes sense that, you know, we have a ship coming back and forth doing supply runs for us. You know, that was one of the great things about Season 2 and some of Season 3, I believe, is that the Daedalus was either here in Atlantis or it was back at Earth or it was on its way to Earth, or on its way to Atlantis, you know, and we weren't really sure where it was, and we could never really count on it. Now, the episode like Inferno would come along, and, you know, we were in a bind, and, oh, well, it's okay, the Daedalus is on its way back, and we can just divert it, you know, so it was mm-hmm. always at our mercy when we needed it. Yeah, it just changed, it, ch- it changed the playing field yeah. when the Daedalus came in. It really did. Here's an interesting comment from Olkesh47. I always thought that the unveiling of Prometheus was pretty sudden, with little lead-up, given the huge implications of Earth's first interstellar ship. I also think that the ships definitely lessened the sense of tangibility to the show. And by that I mean it made Stargate less of a hands-on show in terms of missions, etc. And I think, I think this is a good comment, I think that what Olkesh is talking about in terms of the tangibility of the show is, um, like I said a week or two ago in the podcast, there is a, a very real... Uh, very close earthiness about the physical act of walking through a stargate to Mm -hmm. a planet and so when Mm -hmm. we are traveling via ship and even just the fact that we have us up there running a ship uh, it's more sci-fi it's more sci-fi it's less us here and now well let's fit we don't have space well i take it back we do have spaceships we do have shuttles but we don't have anything like that they are a formidable craft they are a formidable craft yes bad day yeah that's uh and artificial gravity uh, to, to scratch the surface of that the walking through the gate aspect that's something aside from the fact that it's a stargate that's something that we can do and that's something that we're used to you know we we have loved ones many of the listeners uh, of this podcast have loved ones serving in the military you know so that's that's something very real and that's something that was very central and was hallmarked to the show and then we bring in the starships and it just adds a whole other dimension mm-hmm. for better or for worse ian has a similar sentiment here let me read his his letter he says once stargate started having earth-based spaceships it became very star trekky 
The Stargate has been used less and less, while ships have been used more and more. It is harder to believe that it is based in the current time period with all of these technological advances mm-hmm. that the military is taking advantage of. Mm-hmm. I prefer the days when we were fighting these forces that had their technology as an overwhelming advantage. One of the things that I hope Stargate Universe does, despite the fact that it's a spaceship, it finds some way to bring back that innocence. Yeah. To bring back that innocence. Because we are away from Earth. And while that is, you know, while that's one of the things that will make it really hard to say, well, when I, when I talk to my friends about Universe, yes, it is in the here and now. And while it is a spaceship and while it's hard to believe that it's set in the here and now, you know, you, you have to listen to, I'm sure we'll have to, listen to the vernacular of, of the crews to help remind ourselves that yes it is set in the here and now um the fact that the ship is stranded and is on its own i hope presents a vulnerability and an innocence that the earlier seasons of sg1 had and the first season of atlantis had mm-hmm. because in a lot of ways the first season of atlantis is my favorite yeah. we we were stuck this is kind of a tight balance to walk between loving the ship and loving the the introduction of new story elements new ways of telling stories with these ships versus the loss of of what we had before which was that kind of almost helplessness we're out there by the seat of our pants we're making do we're thinking creatively we get into more trouble we don't have that safety net i think the ships really end up being a safety net for the teams mm-hmm. yeah they can go out on a little bit more of a limb and and not have to deal with the the stargate is fixed on a planet you have to defend that position if you're planning on leaving. With the ships, you can go anywhere the heck you want to, and as long as your locator beacon's working fine, you're just rosy. You want to have a team there, like like great episodes like um, Lost City. You know, we have to defend this gate if we want to get home because it's the only way that we can get ourselves out of here. This is Scott from Birmingham, Alabama. I personally never had a problem initially with the idea of the spaceships. I did think after so many years of acquiring alien technology, the spaceships would eventually come. I do have to admit, though, that I was, um, it does remove the element of modern-day people in technologically advanced conflict. It kind of takes away that sort of us with guns fighting them with laser blasters. But I have to admit that one of my favorite things to come out of the spaceships was the development of the F-302, and so that any time they were able to have a dogfight with F-302s and gliders or F-302s and race darts, I had to admit I was very excited. Highlights being like Lost City Part 2 or Enemy at the Gate for Atlantis or even the awful Return of the Jedi ripoff in uh, Season 7 SG-1 Fallen. So Scott talks about the one of the sci-fi elements here, the, the, the fact that we have ships now, the fact that we have a, a bay full of F-302s, that adds some, some cool factor. And like someone said earlier, they do keep the fanboys reeled in. Uh, I like them, but they really are icing. They aren't a core foundation, in my opinion, of what Stargate really is. Yeah, I think that uh, visual effect scenes like that are just exactly what you said. They're icing. They're really cool to have, but they're not. They're not the meat and potatoes of what Stargate has always been about to me. If you don't care about the characters, it's worthless. Now, somebody else made this point, and I don't know if any of our letters uh, that we've got coming up necessarily make it in the same way. Now I'm kind of regretting cutting it, so whoever said this, uh, I apologize for not not including it. It's not necessarily an either-or that you have to choose between storytelling with a Stargate and storytelling with a ship. There have been some really great episodes that have used both of them together well. And the example that this listener gave was, uh, one of them was 
Pegasus Project. And here's a story yes. where, where we're taking a Stargate out uh, in the ship, parking it next to a black hole because we've had experience with these things. We know how to do these sorts of things, keep a Stargate wormhole connection active indefinitely, power it by uh, a singularity. So then we use that Stargate to dial to the Ori Supergate in our galaxy in the Milky Way mm-hmm. in order to prevent the Ori from being able to use it. Um, that's a story that you can't tell without the proper use of both Stargate technology and ships. And I thought it was executed wonderfully. It's one of my favorite episodes of season 10. I completely agree. That is a great idea by Brad, you know, of of putting the ships and the Stargates uh, really together. You know, there there are episodes where the ships enable the Stargates to do all sorts of different things. Another one of my favorites is uh, is season four's Exodus, where we use the ship to get a Stargate to a sun and the same singularity black hole principle from a matter of time. You know, that same black hole principle, just, just chuck it into the sun and you get uh, a supernova and wipe out Apophis's forces. You know, those were cool ideas and they could have only happened with ships. Yeah, so it's definitely possible to do it well, I think, and to not just use a ship as sort of a shortcut. Mm-hmm, definitely. Quaid1 says, I think the addition of ships, although cool as hell, detracted from the overall story of the show. They began relying on the ships for everything, travel, escape, defense. Even the introduction of the Puddle Jumper really turned Stargate in a new direction. It seemed like any time the city or team was in trouble, they should call in the ships to save the day. I think this was really personified in Atlanta Season 1's Underground when uh, Shepard calls in the cavalry of two hidden Puddle Jumpers to save Mm. the day from Kolya. Or was it... uh, I think it was Kolya. No, no, it was no. um, Cowan. That's right. It was uh, Eternal Density who gave us that uh, Pegasus Project idea. Puddle Jumper. Now, here's an interesting thing. It's time, I think, in our discussion to start distinguishing a little bit in ship usage between SG-1 and Atlantis. Uh, and Mac Jackson does this for us. He says, as far as SG-1 goes... I think the addition of the ships was a natural and a well-used addition to the series. The writers always thought ahead and gave us dialogue about them being built long before we saw them. It would have been a mistake to use only the gate for ten years. The ships never took away from the use of the gate and gave us a natural progression to our technology. However, I do think the ships were used way too often on Atlantis and only Mm. took away from their gate use. You think there's a difference between the two shows? In their, in their use of, of ships and their non-use of Stargates? Well, I think you brought up the Puddle Jump, which, which uses, uh, very appropriately here, which, which uses the Stargate, yes, but it really is kind of our shuttle. You know, it, it, it saves us from doing a lot of trekking and fading from one shot to another, you know. Um, and I'd like to say right here, the Puddle Jumpers were dang cool. I'd love to own a toy of one. Uh-huh. God help us with that. Mm-hmm. Um, Atlantis did feel like it was more a, a use of ships than the Stargate. I mean, to the point where we got to seasons four and five and they would cut to the gate and the gate room was like, oh, look at that, that round thing. <laughs> what, what is that? You know, it's so cool looking. There's some sort of shimmering puddle in the background right now. What is shimmering that? Shimmering puddle. I don't know what it is. And we hardly ever used it. That's just the way it was. And I think a part of that too was that they took out the ritual of, of dialing the gate with, with Walter. That's true, yeah. And the studio is, has keyed us in on the fact that puddle passes, the visual effect of having somebody walk through the event horizon and the CG animation technology actually doing the work it's of a still puddle expensive. pass is still expensive and th- that's one area where the costs have not changed in 12 years. 
So right. they try to avoid showing people walking through the Stargate uh, when you need to, to save a little time and money, which is understandable. Yeah. It's a production concern, but uh, you know, when you go half a season without seeing a puddle pass, it, it feels to me like in the last couple of years of Atlantis, at least, we, we would go half a year without seeing somebody physically walk through the Stargate. I know, it was substantial. I mean, the opening of the Atlantis episodes, they'd fade in from black, and it would be hyperspace with Daedalus flying through it. And that same shot over and over and over started so many more Atlantis yeah. episodes. and there was and... a lot of, like when Lorne's team would come back, there'd be a lot of, you hear the sound effect of, of the puddle, and then you'd see Lorne enter frame with his team yeah. and you don't actually see the pass yeah and i appreciate that they're trying to save some dough to give sure. us some really cool starship shots but you know i the puddle pass as expensive as it may be and i know for a fact that it used to take days and now only takes hours to animate even though it costs the same amount of money mm. is still a puddle pass and it still is what stargate is Apollo Mechanic says, I don't feel ships were a bad direction for SG-1. Look back on episodes like Season 6's Memento, where it begins as a ship episode, but then they must rediscover the Stargate, so to speak. And Season 9's Off the Grid. These episodes have shown there could have been some great stories dealing with ships and Stargates. Ships and Stargates together, and I think that's the way to do it. Episodes like, I think it's very like clever, yes. Memento and Pegasus Project are good examples of using our ships to tell interesting stories that I think build on the world of Stargate instead of replacing the Stargate. I think the ships really should help facilitate stories, but should carry stories as minimally as possible. Mm -hmm. Because this is not Star Trek. Stargate is not Star Trek. It was never intended to be Star Trek. And Stargate is about us. It's about the here and now. And we should try to keep that as much as possible. We don't have interstellar travel yet. You know, we can't go from point A to point B yet. The Stargate is our one conceit in this. It was originally, and aliens and all that. I, I just think we're leaving the Stargate behind. We're, we're kind of forgetting about the old girl every time we use that ship more because it's faster. And every time we use transporter technology more because it's faster and it gets the story told. Yeah, I think that the writers are not... It's not that they are are falling back on our ships as as crutches now. I don't mean that at all. I mean they've they've extended the Stargate universe in this direction and now the ships are there. So as a writer you have to use it. You have to acknowledge the fact that this is here and this is a tool that the team has at its disposal and why wouldn't they use it in this particular situation that I've written them into. Not only do you want to execute a good story, but you want to definitely think in the heads of those characters. And when you have fancy spaceships, you know, those they sure do come in handy. And, and boy, if I was John Shepard and I was uh, trapped with a wraith on, on some planet, I sure would want that ship to bail me out. Yeah. Beam me up, Loki, or whatever your name is. <laughs> Loki. <laughs> Hermiod. Hermiod. That's it. So here's the question. At the end of the day, are ships good for Stargate or are they bad for Stargate? Or both neither, because I've just set up a false dichotomy for you. It depends. I'm going to go as conservative as I can here and, and reel it in in terms of what my core idea of what Stargate is for me. And that is the classic seasons of SG-1. So in my book, is it really good for Stargate? No, I would have to say that it's not. I think it's a cool diversion, you know, but I think they need to scale it back. So that's my opinion and I'm sticking to it. Well, as much as we have talked about ships versus Stargates in this podcast over the last 33 episodes, I think that we went into this knowing that you and I were pretty much on the same page with the way the show has used them. They, as a lot of fans have written in and, and 
put forth this opinion, I agree with it, that, that ships have really added a lot to the show. They've added a lot of possibilities. They've taken Unchallenged. places that we never could have gone before. We've been able to tell stories that we never could have told before. Yes. Let's just let's just face it. Space battles are awesome. At the end of the day, I gotta say the reasons why I fell in love with Stargate are about the possibilities that the Stargate as a storytelling device has. And in those early years, season six, seven, eight, I think that the ships were there. They were present to a small enough degree that they were not infringing on that. The last two to three years, uh, the last couple years of Atlantis, and even the end of SG-1, I felt like the ships were were really uh, encroaching on the Stargate as the centerpiece of the show. So, again, I don't want to get rid of them, but yeah, I agree with you. They need to be, I think, reined in a bit. And let's hope that with a show that is set on board a spaceship, that that Stargate is still the centerpiece. Yeah, I um, reined in definitely. I'm not sure that you and I are going to get our wish. Both Atlantis and Universe, when it came down to it, were set on spaceships. So, uh, I mean, Atlantis was a ship. I don't know. It'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see how they how they work with it. But I um, am a, a hopeless optimist, and I have a feeling that it'll work out. Listener mail. We have one more voicemail pertaining not to our main discussion, but to something else entirely, and it comes from Chris. This is Chris from Roseville, California. Hey guys, I think I know how Battlestar Galactica is going to end. It's going to crash land on a planet with a Stargate. Is it too late to hope for a crossover episode? Anyone? Who's with me? Come on. Thanks, Chris, for that call. Fascinating idea. Sprinkles writes in about our SG-1 Season 1 History Podcast and says, Thanks for that podcast. I look forward to discussions of the other nine seasons, if you choose to do that, which we will. You spend a lot of time discussing Sam Carter in depth. I hope sometime in future season reviews, some discussion could also be dedicated to other main characters, such as Jack O'Neill and Daniel Jackson. What we tried to do with the Season 1 podcast was talk about the new characters in Season 1. We spent a bit of time talking about Teal'c. And about Sam. And and we did rush past Jack and Daniel because I think we talked about them in the movie podcast, which was when those characters were introduced. So technically our Stargate history series begins with the movie podcast. Should we talk about Jack and Daniel right now? Oh, we will. Definitely. They are definitely key. And um, I don't know. Maybe you'll see something like uh, podcasts dedicated to individual episodes in the future. We're currently spending that thought. So if you'd like to see that, let us know. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I think that was a fun discussion. Thanks to everybody for writing in and contributing to it. Here's this week's listener question. We're moving from one fascinating topic to the next. Off-season, yay. Next week, the topic is Are Replicators Alive? Our first in what may be a series of uh, Stargate philosophy podcasts, Stargate metaphysics. So this week's listener question is just that. Are Replicators alive? Are they sentient? And do they have rights? Yeah, we invite people to rewatch episodes like SG-1 Season 5's Menace. And the one that I'm certainly keying on is uh, Atlantis Season 3's First Strike. First Strike. And even Season 4's Be All My Sins Remembered. Yeah, yeah. And Season 3's Progeny, when we first meet the Asurans, the uh, Pegasus Galaxy replicators. Uh, Watch Progeny, watch First Strike, and then head into Season 4. And watch Be All My Sins Remembered Again. I think uh, if you enjoy our talks, I think this 
will polarize you in that context. Are replicators alive? Are they sentient? And do they have rights? Again, we're going back to the Geneva Convention about this. You know, Shepard raised the point in season one's Poisoning the Well. If the Wraith had been at the Geneva Convention, I think they'd try to eat them. So we forego it. And they kind of seem to carry that in first strike. I think it's an interesting discussion. And I'll probably take some flack for going against the opinions of our heroes on TV. Uh, about what they should and should not have done, but I think yeah, that I it's think imp- we're pretty transparent in our opinions. It's because in the course of these podcast discussions, we come up with six other ideas for other podcast discussions. So that's right. <laughs> so that'll be our March seventeenth topic: our replicators alive, and then we'll go back and uh, kick off our shoes and put up our feet again for another open line night on March twenty fourth. So be thinking about what you want to hear us yammer on about. Open line night part deuce. And then, uh, for our March 31 show, the Stargate History Lesson continues with SG-1 Season 2. We're moving on up, moving on up to the east side. Did you actually watch that show? <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> I'm old enough to have actually watched that show. It's on TV Land. I'm old enough to have watched that show before Nickelodeon <laughs> existed. Before Nick at Night and TV Land exist. Okay. Oh, gotta love Nick at Night. <sighs> Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. In this episode, David and I talked about ships versus Stargates as storytelling devices. We also gave you a preview of our upcoming interview with Neil Jackson. Look for that on the site in just a few days. And for links to everything we talked about today, head to gateworld.net and look for the episode number 33 show notes. Feedback, feedback, feedback. Give us feedback at the hotline, 616-712-1647. 616-712-1647. We would like to see more voicemails. Yes, yes, do. For more voicemail. Or leave us uh, feedback on the podcast feedback thread. Or call the hotline. Which is always published with each individual podcast. Darren painstakingly goes out of his way to create all sorts of neat little notes that you can follow along. Kind of like, you know, um, at a a church service, you know, the flit that comes out every Sunday. That sort of thing. Follow along with the pastor. And uh, post a review on iTunes or other podcast catchers. Let other people know what you think if you like our show. Let other people know what you think if you don't like our show. It's all the same to us. And call the hotline at 616-712-1647. If you don't like the show, call us and tell us. If you think we're boring, call us and tell us. You know, I would really love to entertain a couple of comments like that. I really would. From GateWorld, this is Darren. This is David. And we'll see see you you next week. Right here next week. Same time. Same. Oh, I guess you can download it whenever you want. That's right. Go to the next one right now. Mm